And as you are, turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Psalm 27, as was read just a moment ago, Psalm 27. It was eight years ago that I preached from Psalm 27. And here we are again, and I think it's worthy of our review because it speaks to a matter that continually plagues us. And by us, I mean me. Psalm 27, in fact, speaks to a matter that is prevalent in our lives. And by our lives, I mean my life. In fact, the theme of Psalm 27 is so important for us in our walk of faith that we made it the focus of our annual summer shepherding series this past August. You may recall it's the matter of fear. Fear. And each of us is afraid in some way, shape, or form. Each of us battle some private fear or worry or anxiety, no matter how strong or brave you may claim to be. There is a fear that nags at your mind and your hearts. And of course, then, each of our human fears has been assigned a label by the establishment, by the experts. Perhaps you're familiar with some of these fears. The fear of close spaces, you may know as claustrophobia. The fear of heights, acrophobia. The fear of spiders, arachnophobia. The fear of germs, germophobia or mysophobia. The fear of drowning, aquaphobia. Then there is this, there is pelidophobia. That is the fear of bald people. You may struggle with that. Worse than that is phallacrophobia. That's the fear of becoming bald, you see. Some of you may struggle with that. My all-time favorite is, if I can pronounce it, arachibutyrophobia. And that is the fear of getting peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. Maybe that's you this evening, but for the most part, we would, we would consider these phobias or these fears to be irrational fears or phobias, unless it is something that you struggle with yourself. We might say that these are silly fears. Normal people don't fear these things unless they, they do. It was Julius Caesar who once remarked that the shouts of his enemies were music to his ears, but he was terribly afraid of thunder, and when a storm was brewing, he would shiver and shake. It was Peter the Great, considered by many to have been the greatest czar of Russia. He was terrified to cross a bridge. He would tremble in his boots whenever he stepped onto a bridge. King Louis XV of France is said to have been so afraid of death that he ordered the subject of death to be off limits in his presence. Stalin. Stalin was constantly in fear of being poisoned or killed. Maybe for good reason. Don't know. He had eight bedrooms in which uh, could be locked up like safes in a bank, and nobody ever knew in which of those bedrooms he slept on any given night. And then upon his return from visiting many parts of the world, our own U.S. President Herbert Hoover was asked by a reporter what, in his judgment, was the prevailing mood of the peoples and the lands that he had visited, and his answer was this. This is Herbert Hoover The dominant emotion everywhere in the world is fear. 
He said this applies to every part of human activity, finance, industry, farmers, workers, thinkers, and government officials. And so I don't know your case this evening. Perhaps if you are honest with yourself, you might confess that you battle some fear in your life. What if such and such happens to my children? What if all things go wrong at work? And the reality is that we're fearful people. And so this evening from Psalm 27, I want to encourage us That is, give courage, encourage. I want to give courage in the same way that David found courage in his life. I've written there in your notes that Psalm 27 is a psalm of confidence in Yahweh. David expresses his confidence in the Lord, his desire to be with the Lord, his plea for deliverance by the Lord, his encouragement because of the Lord. And in these ways, he and we can move from fear to faith if we are fixed upon the Lord. Let me pause for prayer and then we'll study the psalm together. God in heaven, we confess that we are fearful people. And Lord, even this evening, there are anxieties and there are worries and there are fears that nag at our minds and our hearts. God, we carry concerns and burdens. We don't know what a day will bring forth and Lord, there are so many threats to our our safety and our well-being and and of those we love. I pray, God, that you would, through the Holy Scripture and by your Holy Spirit, help us to fix our faith upon you to answer our fears. And so as we study the psalm, give us insight and understanding. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Of course, The psalmist David, the shepherd boy David, King David, he knew the meaning of fear better than most because his life was lived in the face of one vicious attack after another. Think with me, as a boy, David spent his days and his nights out in the fields alone with the sheep on guard against the attacks of carnivorous animals like lions and bears. Then as a young man for many years, he was a number one fugitive in Israel. He was hiding from the wrath of King Saul as he fled for his life. Later, his own son Absalom threatened him and and his throne by mounting a military revolt that drove David from Jerusalem into the wilderness. And a general reading of the Psalms or a general reading of, of the Old Testament reveals that David had frequent cause for fear. His fears were founded. They were legitimate. And specifically here in Psalm 27, David identifies his fears. Look with me at Psalm 27. Let's uh, look at verse number two. In verse number two, David is, is fearful. His, his enemies and his foes want to eat his flesh and devour him. Look at verse number three. They encamped around him and made war against him. Look at verse five. He cited a a time of trouble where he needed to be safely hidden. Verse six. His enemies are all around him. Verse 10. His family has abandoned him. Evidently, he's alone. Verse 10, verse 12, he had adversaries who lied about him and threatened him with violence. Verse 13, he admits that he's nearly lost heart. 
But in the face of all of these fears, David finds courage and confidence and comfort and calm in the person of God. Let's look at it. Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? These rhetorical questions. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. It was in World War II, a military governor met with General George Patton in Sicily. And when he praised Patton for his courage and bravery, the general replied, Sir, I am not a brave man. The truth is, I'm an utter coward. I have never been without the sound of gunshot or or in sight of battle in my whole life that I wasn't so scared that I had sweat in the palms of my hands. But I learned very early in my life never to take counsel of my fears. And in a very similar way, David here, he doesn't take counsel of his fears, but rather he reminds himself of the person and the presence of God. Look at verse number one again there. Verse one doesn't say that the Lord gives light. It says that the Lord is light. It doesn't say that Yahweh gives salvation. It says that he is salvation. God doesn't just help us discover a refuge or a safe place. He is our refuge and safe place. Verse one is all about the personal presence of the Lord Yahweh. You might fill in your notes, number one, fear is disabled by God's presence. Fear is disabled by God's presence. And when darkness surrounds us, it is, it is the light that disables our fears. Yahweh is that light. And when the proverbial shadows of life loom and, and are large and threaten us, it's the person in the presence of God that calms our fears. And we know this. We know this in very practical ways. It's not uncommon for children to be afraid of the dark. I think each of my five children at some point was afraid of the dark, suffered at some point from the fear of bedtime because of the darkness. So what does a parent do when a child complains that they're afraid of the dark? I don't know about in your home, but in our home, we did the, the normal natural thing of turning on the light, checking under the bed, checking in the closet, proving to the child there's nothing here to be afraid of, right? And turning off the lights and back on, see, everything's still in the same place. There's nothing to be afraid of. Turning off the light again and assuring them that they are still safe because mommy and daddy are with them. And in the presence of the parent, A child is comforted. I think that's exactly what David is referencing here at the beginning in in verse number one. The Lord is the light. And the Lord is standing by. He is with us. Specifically, David recognized that letter A, God's presence supersedes any threat. God's presence supersedes any threat. It was David's enemies that were the source of his fear. You see it there in verses two and and three. But even when we are faced with a threat of an enemy, the presence of God is greater. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And this was David's confidence. Folks, there's a lot of fear-mongering that goes on in our culture today. We are told to fear climate change, and pandemic, and rogue nation states, and the probability of recession. And I'm not saying that those 
threats aren't real. In fact, I think they are very real, but our culture is controlled by the fear of these things. Never mind our culture at large, there's a lot of fear-mongering that takes place among Christians today. Our, our government is corrupt and on a trajectory to crush our religious liberties. We're gonna lose our tax-exempt status as a church and they're gonna take our, our children away I'm not saying that those threats aren't real, but we cannot be controlled by the fear of those things. So what do we do? We turn to the person and the presence of God. Our confidence must be in the Lord. That's what David is writing, he's saying here in verses one through three. But let's continue, verse four. One more thing, I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above, up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. God's presence supersedes any threats. That's letter A. Letter B, God's presence is seen in his dwelling place. God's presence seen in his dwelling place. And David's attention now is focused on one thing, verse number four. One thing have I desired, and that's God's presence in God's dwelling place. Now think about this with me for a moment. Could it be that David desired to lay aside his sword to escape the pressures of the battlefield and and serve in the tabernacle with the priests? Oh, that would be so great. Rather than being at war, to be back in the tabernacle with the priests. Or could it be that David desired to lay aside his crown and rather escape the the pressures of the throne and, and join the rest of the, of Israel in worship in the presence of God in the house of the Lord. And whatever his desire, David wanted to not be where he was at, but rather be in the house of God, the presence of God, the dwelling place of God, where the solution to his fears w- was the safest place to be, near the Lord, in his presence, in his house. So if you'll allow me a little bit of humor here this evening, it is said that 20% of all fatal accidents occur in automobiles. 17% of all fatal accidents occur at home. 16% of all fatal accidents occur in planes, trains, and boats. That leaves very few places to find safety, but I have an option for you this evening. Evidently, the safest place, only .001% of fatal accidents occur, and that's in church, right? That's here at church, other than the occasions when the pipes freeze and burst and there's some calamity like that, you are safe here. Of course, I'm not suggesting that we we live here in the church building, but David recognized there is a place to go, a safe space, a safe place in God's presence. And where did God reside? Where was God's presence in the Old Testament? Well, there in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, later, the temple. And so David is logically following from the early verses of the psalm, now through verses four through six. If the Lord is my light and my salvation, if the Lord is the strength of my life, if the presence of God is the answer to my fears, 
then I need to go where God is. God is in the tabernacle. God is in later the temple. I need to go to the house of God, the meeting place of worship. It's not far away, perhaps just a page back. Go to Psalm 23. We're familiar with Psalm 23, perhaps the most familiar of David's psalms. Psalm 23 says something about fear and the presence of of God. Look at verse number four, Psalm 23, verse number four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. That's God's presence. Look look at uh, verse number six. The, the latter part of verse number six, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's God's dwelling place. And folks, if we would be captured and enraptured by the person and the presence of God, it would answer our fears. How big is your problem? Oh, Pastor Matt, it's big. You have no idea. How big is your God? Your God is bigger than that problem. Then go to God. Chase after the Lord. Remain in his presence. and It will drive away your fears. Let me give you an illustration of this practically, how this might flesh out. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17 says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a doxology part of a hymn, and we recognize that. But if you turn your notes over, it was upon reading 1 Timothy 1.17 that Jonathan Edwards wrote this. Here's what he says, as I read, as I read the words of, of 1 Timothy 1.17, there came into my soul and was as it were diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. Stop there. Let me read again 1 Timothy 1.17. It's something we, we often quickly scan because, yeah, we get it. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Jonathan Edwards is, is reading through that, that scripture and a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at time came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. My mind was greatly fixed on divine things, almost perpetually in the contemplation of them. I spent most of my time in thinking of divine things year after year, often walking alone in the woods in solitary places for meditation, soliloquy, and prayer, and in converse with God. And it was always my manner at such times to sing forth my contemplations. Folks, what in the world is he talking about? That almost sounds strange, or foreign, 
It seems perhaps a bit impractical, but he is talking about being captured and enraptured with his meditation upon the Lord so much so that he could sing. That's what Paul and Silas did in jail. They sang. They should have been shaking in their sandals at the fate that awaited them, but they sang. And that's what David then is doing the end of verse number six. I think we probably missed it in the reading of it. Psalm 27, verse number six. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And maybe there's a reason that we're so full of fear in our lives because our attention is ground bound and our, our focus is on our circumstances rather than on the sovereign of our lives. And we spend an hour watching the news in maybe five minutes thinking on the God of that news. And so naturally our hearts are full of, of fear. Here in Psalm 27, there's, there's a shift that takes place in the psalm. If you can think of the psalm in, in two parts, verses one through six, we've just read. And then secondly, verses seven to, to 12 and, and, and so on. The, the first six verses might be the, the surety of safety in God's presence. But now there's a cry for security in God's protection in verses seven and 12. In the first half, verses one to six, David is concluding that the presence of God in the house of God is the solution to his fears. By the time he gets to the end of verse number six, he is singing. But in the second half of the psalm, beginning now in verse number seven, David's in a panic again. It's as if his fears have returned, and, and so he pleads to the Lord for protection. So consequently, some have argued that Psalm 27 really ought to be two psalms, verses one through six, and then verses seven and following, because they're, they're so different here. However, I think the change of tone is real in this way. How many times have you talked yourself off the ledge? How many times have you counseled yourself, spoken truth into your heart, in your mind, in your life, and you've quieted down, you've you've answered your fears, and then what happens the very next day? It's like it comes all back, all over again, and I think David's change of tone really reflects the reality of our own fears. And just as David was confident in verse number three, my heart shall not fear, By the time we get to verse number seven, he's anxious again. And so we conquer our fears just for a time, but yet they raise their ugly, their their head and they rear their ugly head again. And so David is simply experiencing what we all experience. But David then did what we should all do. And he cries out to the Lord now when faced with his fear. That's number two in your notes. Fear is dismantled by God's protection. It's disabled by God's presence Fear is dismantled by God's protection. And I'd like to read verses seven through 10. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. I would suggest letter A, God's grace accepts, accepts fearful people. Let me me explain it this way. It would be presumptuous for me to barge into the Oval Office of the White House 
uninvited. In fact, I probably wouldn't even make it across the South Lawn because there are snipers there on the roof of the White House and there are, there's a Secret Service and, and other security there that would probably cut me down quickly or any other deranged person so quickly that we would never get direct access to the Oval Office or to the President of the United States. However, think of God. How much more dangerous would it be to go directly to God without an invite? But David knew that he could petition the Lord because David came with an invitation in hand. Look at verse number eight. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. And to seek the face of a king meant to seek his favor and forgiveness and mercy and grace. It it wasn't to indulge his petty demands, but to entreat him for relief, to seek his aid for his need. We know this well from the account of Esther. Her people, the Jews, were in danger of extermination. She needed to appeal to the king, but she didn't have an invitation. The king was her only source of safety for her people, but she was equally fearful of the king. Would he accept her or reject her? And of course, we know the story. In his grace, the king accepted her approach and then proved to protect the Jews from the wicked plot of of Haman in that case. Here in the Psalms, in Psalm 27, David rehearses the gracious character of God and reminds himself, I have an invitation to that important place with that important person. When everybody else fails me or abandons me, I know where I can go. God will take care of me. Verse number 10. Now, he says in verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. How does he know that? Is he crossing his fingers? Is he holding his breath? Is he rolling the dice? How does he know in verse number 10 that the Lord will take care of him? Look at verse number nine. Because God has been his help in the past. You have been my help. And folks, I would submit to us this evening that God has extended the invitation to us. Hebrews four, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so God's grace accepts fearful people when we go to him with our our fears. Verse number 11, Psalm 27, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my, my enemies. Letter B, God's grace teaches fearful people. God's grace accepts fearful people. You're welcome to approach. God's grace teaches fearful people. And, and David is not asking for a magic wand to make all the fear go away. He, he doesn't demand a, a quick fix, but rather in verse 11, he's asking God to teach him so that he might know God's way through that difficult situation. He's asking for a smooth path, a level straight path. It's literally the word uprightness so that he, he isn't asking to be shown an easy road, but he's asking to be shown the right road, the correct road so that he might move forward in righteousness. In verse number 12 there, the form of the attack doesn't seem to be physical combat or battle, but, but vicious speech. Here's the thing, in, in, in physical battle, you die once. In verbal battle, when you have a vocal enemy, 
you die over and over and over again. You know what I mean? Have you felt that? Look at verse number 12. Do, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. This is David's fear. In fact, perhaps he might even be tempted to say, let me die once and then it's over. But over and over again, I, I'm suffering the threat of my adversaries and these false witnesses who are slandering me. And, um, and so when people slander us, it's so easy to return insult for insult or false information for their lies. But David is teachable here. He wants to re- respond rightly. That was our study last week from Psalm 26. How do we do right when we've been done wrong? Verse 13, he admits his vulnerability. Verse 13, I would have lost heart. He would have lost heart. He would have fainted. He would have caved in if it wasn't for his faith in, in Yahweh. So the conclusion is simple, but, but good advice. Verse number 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your hearts. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I don't like to wait. We don't like to wait. This past summer, my wife and I were in the state of Maine just for a week there during the sabbatical, and we came across a sign hanging in a shop in the state of Maine. It read this, antiques made while you wait. Perhaps you've seen a, a sign similar to that. It's, it's like, ears pierced while you wait. Okay, you can think about that as if you wouldn't wait for your ears to be pierced, right? Um, we, we don't like waiting, and if we have to wait, we want it, want it done quickly. Waiting is, is the most difficult part of our fears, and we don't know what a day will bring forth. We don't know what the test results will be. We haven't heard from our loved one who is far away. If we don't get an answer pretty quickly, we're going to be in trouble. And so we wait, and we wait, and we pray with David and other psalmists, how long, O Lord? How long until you answer me? How long until you vindicate me? How long until you, you uh, intervene in my circumstance? It was a Jewish refugee during World War II who wrote on his cell wall, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I'm alone. I believe in God even when he is silent. We must wait and trust so that when we are confronted, when we are confronted by our fears, we remember the person, the presence, the protection of Jehovah God, Yahweh God. In Joshua 1.9, he said, have I not commanded you, be strong and be of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. Sometimes God will calm the storm. Sometimes he lets the storm rage and he calms his child. Folks, bad things will happen. Calamity will occur. All of your fears may come true. (laughs) Am I helping? 
Go to God, go to the Lord with your fears. You have been invited, you've been given approach. Spend your time, your days in his presence under his protection and allow him to comfort and strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this encouragement. We take courage from this psalm. Lord, it's a comfort to us that know, to know that even David struggled and battled the fears of his life. Lord, as we do, we're embarrassed a bit by the things we worry about, the things we're anxious for. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to live victorious as we wait upon you and we trust you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.